Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes I'll be like, okay, Saturday evening i'm gonna block out that time to write music and i think Mm -hmm. it kind of makes it seem like okay if it's scheduled then my brain is gonna prepare for that and (laughs) honestly like i get in there and i just like i don't know i end up just looking at youtube the whole time yeah (laughs) welcome back to working i'm your host isaac butler and i'm your other host karen hahn Hey, Karen, I feel like it has been forever since we've (laughs) shared hosting duties. How have you been? How are you doing? I've been pretty good. I've missed you, obviously. How are you? I'm doing okay. You know, mid-semester, got lots of papers to grade. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what you gonna do? Uh, So who who did we hear from at the top of this episode? So that was Cameron Liu, the genius behind the American indie soul music project Ginger Root. He recently released a new EP called Nisemono, and I thought that was as good an excuse as any to get him on the show because I am a big fan of his music and music videos. That sounds great. If you're a Slate Plus member, do you get something extra this week or what? Oh my gosh, yes. We actually have a lot of goodies for the Slate Plus segment this week because our conversation was so great. Um, We talk about Cameron transitioning out of having a day job while starting to work on Ginger Root and how he balanced the two things in the meanwhile, and also when he first became interested in music and started to kind of pursue it more seriously. So there is a lot to look forward to in the Slate Plus segment this week. That's wonderful. And if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll have that waiting for you at the end of this week's episode. If you're not a Slate Plus member, I mean, why don't you just pause this and sign up right now, and then you could get access to that. You could get full access behind the paywall of our mothership site, Slate.com, which you may have heard of. You get uh, bonus episodes of other shows. You get so much stuff. All you got to do is go to Slate.com slash Working Plus to sign up today. Now. Let's take a listen to Karen Hahn's conversation with Cameron Liu, a.k.a. Ginger Root. Hello, Cameron. Thank you so much for coming on to Working. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to chat. I don't get to chat very often about all this stuff. So I'm very excited. Well, it's our honor to have you on then because I'm such a huge fan of your music. And I wanted to start off by talking about your new EP, uh, Nisemono. What I really find remarkable about it is that you built this entire story around and through it. And I was hoping just for our listeners, if you could explain kind of the plot of the EP and also what inspired you to build an EP this way. Sure, absolutely. So the whole concept of the EP is the year is like 1984. Um, Ginger Root is brought in to write songs for an up-and-coming Japanese pop idol, uh, Kimiko Takaguchi. Mm -hmm. She's having her American debut, and the song I wrote for her, she's going to sing on this, like, fictitious late-night show. 
but because of the pressure, she quits right before her debut. Her manager runs up to me and is like, yo, you wrote the songs, you gotta sing them because you know them. And then I'm thrusted into this spotlight and then the EP follows that journey of like this unexpected rise to kind of unwanted stardom, I guess, unexpected, <laughs> and then kind of the, the trials that come with that. The story is actually still continuing um, with through like the music videos and stuff. I have yet to make them or conclude them, but there is an ending. <laughs> and uh, once I have a little bit more free time after tour, I will yeah. uh, conclude the EP story. But yeah, that's kind of what it's about. So when you were coming up with the story, like did the premise, did the idea of the story come first? Or did you have like some songs beforehand where you're like, oh, I feel like these kind of tied together in this thematic way? I definitely had like a lot of demos, but not like a clear vision. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately it was the idea of this like fictitious, you know, pop idol. And if I wrote the songs for her and it was kind of like this way of being able to pretend I wasn't Ginger Root for a second and like mm-hmm. being able to kind of explore maybe a different style of writing. And it kind of helped me write all the songs. And then it, you know, once each song kind of started to form together and come in, that's really when the whole specifics of the world and the idea really just came together all at once. And you actually did a sort of similar thing with your 2021 EP City Slicker, where it's structured kind of around a story, although in that time it was around this fictional film. Yeah, I think that's the first time that you went this kind of narrative route for an EP or album. What was the initial, I guess, kind of inspiration for you to think, oh, like, I want to structure my work in this way? My previous records before City Slicker definitely had like thematic, you know, elements to it, but it wasn't very narrative driven. Yeah. And honestly, I think the record that I put out during the pandemic, Ricky, mm-hmm. you know, selfishly, I, I thought that that was the record that was going to break, you know, and I thought yeah. I put a lot of work into it and I had high hopes for it. And that was kind of the first time I had those feelings and I really felt confident in it. And just because of the state of the world and I think just because of what the record was, I think maybe a little too personal or something or all these outside factors, you can never tell. Um, it just didn't really perform as well as I thought it was going to be. And so when it came time, you know, where I was like, what do I want to do next? I kind of shifted my perspective of being like, let me just make kind of like a world that's like totally made up that I'd like to live in. And let mm-hmm. me make kind of a thing that's a little bit more, I think, positive or upbeat or fun for people where they can buy in and and they can envelop themselves into this narrative for like a quick 15 to 20 minutes. And then, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully that could provide basically an escape because I think at that point when I was writing stuff, like I wanted to make an escape for myself, you know, through the music. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really where I figured out that I wanted to maybe make something more narrative that came along with the project. And so I think it was a combination of things, but I ended up having a lot of fun with City Slicker in terms of making this world and world building and this universe building, if you want to call it that. And uh, I decided to continue that on Nisei Mono. That's awesome. And I actually want to jump on a quick tangent, just based on what you were saying about the perceived success of Ricky. Um, it's sort of something that I think we it's hard to not talk about in a creative field where it's like there's what you consider as like creative success where it's like I'm proud of this thing that I made and I think it's good versus right. like a, I guess a broader success of like how does an audience receive it. Um, so what for you like is success on that front? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Ricky was kind of my real second album. So with mm-hmm. my first record, Mahjong Room, it was kind of like, I'm going to make a record. Like, I'm just yeah. going to do this. I'm going to like let it fly, you know? And when it was time to make Ricky or when I was making Ricky, that took two and a half years. And I think mm-hmm. I fell into the trap of like, I need this to be like vacuum tight. Like I need this yeah. to be like like a, a really like important project that means a lot for me. And I think I got maybe too involved with the the expectations and because it was so long, like of a process, my expectations mm-hmm. grew. And I think just as a creative, like it's hard not to kind of get into that headspace, yeah, you know, yeah. um, I think that's just part of the creative process. And so when, you know, baking Ricky and making Ricky, like, you know, over that long period of time, I think I lost a sense of why I started Ginger Root in the first place. And mm-hmm. and I, I am very proud of Ricky. I, I really think that's a special album to me. Yeah. And I think maybe, you know, to answer a part of your question is, you know, I'm very happy with the way it turned out. And I think that's the most important. But just yeah. as a creative, just naturally, of course, like reception is kind of just a part of, you know, yeah. being creative and artistry. And I think as a musician of, you know, no one's really listening. It it, it hurts a little bit. Um, yeah. So to bring it back to Nisei Mono, how long did this EP take you to put together? In terms of like songwriting, mixing, I think just like from audio, the audio standpoint and like the music standpoint, maybe like five months or something mm-hmm. like that. And then the videos kind of waterfalled with the singles. So, mm-hmm. you know, w- with the album release, I think as a whole from like start date to uh, release date, it was under a year, I'd say. Wow. And I, I definitely want to talk about the music videos because I'm obsessed with them. But to start with the <laughs> songwriting process, is there a typical, I guess, process for you when it comes to writing songs? Like, do lyrics come first? Does the melody come first? Or does it kind of depend from song to song? I normally start with the music. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll be poking around at a guitar or a keyboard and something will kind of pique my interest and I'll kind of write on that for a little bit. I've gone back and forth between like the idea of like, oh, if it's in the moment, like just keep going, even if I'm tired or if it's late at night or Mm -hmm. I need to do something else, like just keep writing it. And then also going between like, okay, I got like one idea, I'm going to let it sit. Um, So in terms of that, it's been kind of a rolling process, but normally it's music first. Uh, I'll write a full demo where it's just keys, bass, and drums because I know that's what we have to play live. Um, so mm-hmm. I want to kind of make sure that the song can stand with those three core elements because there's only yeah. three of us on stage. And then I'll usually finish that. I'll let that sit. And then I'll come back to it and actually relearn it like if I had to play it live. So then mm-hmm. I play it better. I'll make this whole thing with like synths and everything where like just the ideas are there, it might be rough, but like the new ideas are there, the new layers are there, the new textures are there. Um, I'll let that sit and then I'll come back and I'll basically re-record everything mm. and have this like idea of like, okay, I got to get everything in one take because I want to make sure like it's as clean as possible. So like I'll rehearse everything before I'll take it and usually vocals and lyrics are like last. And I noticed that you you play all the instruments yourself on the EP. Is this always how you do it? Yeah, I write and record and produce and perform Mm -hmm. everything you hear on the EP. That's amazing. Um, And I know you've spoken, I think, about it before in that it tends to work that way just because your process is kind of, as you were saying, a bit like flow of the moment. Like if you're in the flow, then you just want to keep doing it. And sometimes it makes it hard to 
I guess, collaborate with other artists like in the songwriting process. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about, I guess, achieving that flow and also your thoughts or experiences working with other artists. Because again, you have two other people that you tour with, but in recording, it is just you. Yeah, definitely. In terms of like hitting that flow and getting in that that mindset, like when either like making music or any part of the EP, like, you know, um, figuring out the stories for the music videos, editing, or even like designing merch or whatever, like any Mm -hmm. part of the creative process. Like, I think first with specifically with music, I have learned over, you know, the years of doing this and then like kind of the other bands I used to be in too is like, you can't schedule when that flow is going to come. I think like sometimes I'll be like, okay, Saturday evening, I'm going to block out that time to write music. And I think Mm -hmm it kind of makes it seem like, okay, if it's scheduled, then my brain is going to prepare for that. And (laughs) honestly, like, there are times where that works. Like, I've tried it and, you know, I'll be like, okay, that was like a cool session. Like, And then sometimes (laughs) I get in there and I just like, I don't know, I end up just looking at YouTube the whole time or something and like nothing. And I feel bad or whatever. Um, And then other times, like, I'll be poking around like on this like really bad guitar I have in middle school. And then like in five minutes, I'm like, that's a song that's weird like and i'll and i'll voice memo it and then i'll i'll drive to the studio and i'll like keep humming it on the way or something so yeah it's i think what i've learned is like it's unpredictable Mm -hmm. when the time comes where you're in that moment i think do whatever you can to stay in there because for Mm -hmm. me and and everyone's different but for me i feel like it's a very special moment that that's where i think things you know are created and i think if you can get into that headspace you should stay there for as long as you can yeah absolutely i guess that's the idea of the muse where it's like you it'll come to you when it wants to and then you have to kind of take advantage of that time rather than hoping that you can plan it out yeah absolutely it's it's funny that you say that too because you know i was trying to think of like creative solutions for like a video or Mm -hmm. like this one part of the song and I remember like working on it every day for I think maybe like a week straight and just mm-hmm. I, I came up with these ideas, but I was not happy with like any of them. <laughs> and I remember just like taking a few days off where I didn't even think about it. I think I like I tried to do something else or I just like, I don't know, I just kind of let it sit on the shelf for like a weekend or something like that. Yeah. Did not think about it at all. And I came back and my brain was like, oh, you should just do this. And I was like, why, wow. didn't, I, why didn't I think about that in the first <laughs> place? So I think another part of the process is like, let things sit. Like they say, my friend says, remember the phrase like sleep on it? Like that's an actual mm. thing. And <laughs> I'm a believer now after that. So. <laughs> I think that's a good actionable piece of advice. So thank you. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to ask, how did you end up sort of coming up with your sound or your aesthetic, as it were? Because you self-describe as, quote unquote, aggressive elevator soul, which is a description I really, <laughs> really love. Um, I was hoping you could break that down in terms of sound as well as like influence, as well as like how you came to that as, I guess, your label, as it were. Specifically with like the actual phrase aggressive elevator soul, (laughs) I remember we were playing, we're opening at some local bar and this guy who I believe was very drunk came up Mm -hmm. and was like, oh, you guys are amazing. Like, I felt like so chill. I was like in an elevator the whole time. It was so loud. So it's like aggressive, man. But man, you guys got soul because whatever. And I remember just piecing together. I'm like, oh, so like aggressive elevator. So it's like, yeah, 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 like that. And I was like, that's a great term. I'm going to steal that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's where, like, the term actually came about. Um, in terms of, like, finding the sound, I think that's something 
that is an ever evolving journey and an ever evolving process. I think like at first, like it definitely was music. Like if we're talking about like Mahjong Room and Spotlight People, which yeah. is like, my very first record under Ginger Root, like I think it was all a process of actually playing and writing songs that were completely different than the stuff I was writing and playing with at the time. You know, I was mm-hmm. playing like a lot of guitar based music, like jangle pop stuff, power pop or like psych pop stuff. Um, and I just wanted to maybe write songs that were outside my comfort zone. And so I started playing around with keyboards and everything. And I think that will always be a fundamental of Ginger Root is like a mm-hmm. synth sound and a keyboard sound. I think that's something that's still stayed like throughout all these like albums, but I think it's always like an ongoing journey. But I think something that stays the same is like, I kind of grew up listening to like Motown stuff and there's definitely something, a groove element to that. Mm -hmm. You know, in high school, I learned about like power pop. So like, um, electric, like orchestra, XTC, you know, Paul McCartney's solo career, you know, you know, stuff (laughs) like that. Um, and I think, all those combine in addition to also like finding out about the whole world of like Japanese music in high school. Mm-hmm. Like I think all those three avenues generally are what influences Ginger Root's sound. Yeah. And of course, we also have to talk about the name Ginger Root. You've told the story of the name before that it came from. It was inspired by a Wolfpack performance. But yes. I wanted to know specifically what made you decide to take a sort of stage name or band name rather than just going by your name, Cameron Liu? I think to be completely honest, I wasn't sure if I wanted to turn Ginger Root into a band later down the road. Mm, okay. And I really, I really am not a fan of like so-and-so and and the so-and-sos, you know, or whatever, you know, like that type of band. I didn't want to like attach that later down the road. So I I also, to be honest, like I felt like if I used my name, it'd be even more personally attached to me, you know, because it's like it is Cameron Liu, like Cameron Liu makes this music. And I felt like I wasn't super confident in what I was doing. I didn't know if Ginger was going to stick around or whatever. And I think like I wanted to maybe try to take some of the weight off and take some of the pressure of being like, oh, this is a project and this is a moniker versus like this is all writing on like one person's shoulders because it's like the person's name or something like Mm -hmm. that we'll be back with more of karen's conversation with cameron Liu after this this podcast is sponsored by ramp Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hey, listeners, it's uh, Isaac Butler here. Just wanted to say a couple things real quick. First of all, if you're listening to this podcast, but you do not subscribe to it, why don't you go to your podcast doohickey app thingamajig and click subscribe? And if there's some method of rating us like stars on the Apple store or, or a check mark or a, I don't know, a, a stamp of approval, something, uh, if you could do that too, that helps us find new listeners. We also would love to hear from you you. If you've got a question you want to ask us, a guest you'd like to see, maybe you've done something creatively awesome that you want to share with your fellow listeners. Well, drop us a line at working at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 304-933-WORK. All right, now let's listen to the rest of Karen's conversation with Cameron Liu. So again, I want to talk about the music videos and I because the music videos that you've produced are really, really incredible. They are so polished and they're so they're so fun to watch. The storytelling is Thank so you. great and so is the production. Can you tell me a little bit about where the creative process starts uh, for a music video? Yeah. Um, so I went to Chapman and I majored in film production as an editor. And yeah. I and before I did Ginger Root or like also while I was doing Ginger Root when it first started, I was freelance editing. So I think like my foundation comes from that in terms of I also think like for narrative, like wanting mm-hmm. to have the EPB narrative, I think comes mm-hmm. from a film background mm-hmm. that I have. Um, but in terms of like the process, you know, it's different for every song. But most of the time I'll be like, at that demo stage where it's like all the layers are there, but it's a little rough and I want to retake mm-hmm. vocals or something. Um, that's usually when when I'm listening to that version over and over again, there's these little bits and pieces of like ideas for scenarios or scenes that would slowly come about. And I think for this EP in particular, because I had this like premise, I'm like, okay, it's like 1984. There, I'm like writing a song for an idol. I had that kind of like foundation to go off. And I think once the song started to roll in, I was like, oh, there should be a video where like I'm the spokesperson for these commercials or there should be a video where like, you know, I'm performing on late night or there should Mm -hmm. be a part where like I go on vacation or, you know, and all these things slowly piece together into this, I think, big overarching storyline. And then once the songs were like pretty much done, I sat down uh, with my friend David, who helps me with all the videos, and I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. how do we piece together what songs are what scenes and what mm-hmm. songs are what part of this bigger narrative or whatever? 
and we say, okay, loneliness, which is the one of the songs on the EP, is like, yeah. okay, this is going to be this scene, this scene, and this scene. And then from there, it's just like logistically, okay, how do we... <laughs> How do we do that? Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of logistics, though, that video has a f- shot of you or a scene of you at an airfield coming out of a jet, which when I watched it, I was like, holy shit, like, how did you manage this? <laughs> that, wow, that's a long story in itself. I'll, oh, I'll, really? I'll, 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 I'll abbreviate it. But basically, okay. uh, that scene of me coming off a jet is a reference to like a clip from 1980. Um, there's this clip from this Japanese music show called Best of Ten, where they like, they, um, for those who don't know who Best of, what Best of Ten is, it's basically like every week they list the top 10 songs of like the pop idols of like that, that week or something like that. And so number whatever was Seiko Matsuda, Mm -hmm. who had her debut song. And the clip is literally them just waiting, like at the side of the jet, it flies in. She, she's the first to walk off the plane. They hand her headphones. They're like, all right, sing your song. And then the oh song just starts. It's crazy. I, I, <laughs> it's been taken off YouTube here and there. I've downloaded it for myself because it's just such a special <laughs> clip. And like, there's like people are trying to leave the plane, and she's just like singing in front of like no. this jet. So because of the whole theme of like you know yeah. 80s Japan and like the Showa era and idol culture, I was like, I have to reference this. Mm-hmm. And when I told David, I was like, I need a plane. He was like, I don't know how we're gonna do that. So anyway, we tried to find so many solutions. We're like, you know, we're based out of LA, so we're like, it should be easy. Like people yeah. film here all the time. You can find a lot of insides of planes but not outsides of planes um because of like permitting or whatever Mm -hmm. then we tried private jet companies because we figured like oh maybe you know their planes obviously look good and maybe they'll let us do it or whatever and unfortunately because of covid Mm. private air travel for really rich people have gone up like 600 (laughs) percent Um, oh, God. So they're like, you can film with the plane, but you have to rent the plane as if you were going to fly it. <gasps> so obviously out of our budget. Um, then we went to like a World War II museum who like had their own planes, but they were much cheaper because they're a nonprofit, but cheaper wasn't cheap enough. Thankfully, that guy, one of the people from the private jet company called us and was like, hey, I'm just checking in. Are you like all good with your shoot? And we're like, no, we can't find anyone. They're like, okay, well, what's your max budget? And we're like this much not a penny more they're like okay well i have a friend who rents his jet out for photo shoots and it's he usually it's usually in paris but it's here like the day you want to shoot if you call him and he says yes you can use it we called he was super french he was like what do you want for you know whatever (laughs) and we're like you know we explained the whole thing and like the whole show the whole reference and he was like okay like he was like these guys are crazy and he came back and he's like yeah, my plane flies in that day. It's got to get washed that night. You can film with it like in the evening and then it's got to fly out the next day. So if you wow. can make it work, like make it work he, super, super cheap for what it was. And that is how we found a plane. That's incredible. I mean, it absolutely is worth it. I think <laughs> having watched the video. It was, it was a, it was a crazy experience. Like a uh, shout out air seven that for some reason, <laughs> if people are looking for private jets, Dennis, at Air 7 and uh, Matt at Air 7 hooked it up. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, that's a good shout out to have on this podcast, I think. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I wanted to ask, I guess, another production related question as well. It's like, it seems like you're doing all of this like pretty independently. So when you are 
kind of planning for these music videos, like how do you decide, like, I won't ask exact numbers as to like what budget you're setting aside, but like how <laughs> do you budget for this kind of stuff? Because it seems very labor intensive. Yeah, it definitely is a labor of love. I definitely lose <laughs> several years off my life every video, you know, uh, but you know, it's for Ginger Root. Um, but I mean, overall, like, it's a lot of fun to make. Um, in terms of like logistically doing it, uh, thankfully, this round, this cycle for this EP, I've gotten a little bit more funds from Acrophase Records, which is the label mm-hmm. I'm on. And so before it was definitely like independent, they'd give me, you know, a couple bucks and stuff. But um, they were basically like, like, okay, however many videos you want to make, like, this is the chunk of change we can give you. And so it's up to you to figure out, like, obviously, like, loneliness took a big portion of that money. Mm-hmm. But then, like, we, me and David uh, tried to figure out, like, okay, so for, like, over, over the hill example, like, if we could just shoot it all outside, then we don't mm-hmm. have to pay for location. We don't have to pay, you know, stuff like that. So definitely it was kind of a juggling act of, like, okay, we have this amount of resources and this amount of funds. Mm-hmm. You know, thankfully, I have a David and I have kind of formulated like our go to crew. And what's really cool is like it's kind of scalable, too. Mm -hmm. So some people understand like, okay, this is the big number. This is the showstopper. So we need all hands on deck, you know, or whatever. And then sometimes it's like, hey, no offense. I can only afford like literally David. So (laughs) (laughs) sorry, everyone. And everyone's like, no, we, we get it. It's cool. So yeah, yeah, it's been a huge learning experience. And I think whatever the next project's going to be, I think we have more knowledge to figure out how to smoothly make that happen. This whole thing is a learning process, which is what keeps us on our toes and what keeps it fun. Mm -hmm. And and another thing in terms of, I guess, stuff that you have to plan to do apart from creating music is going on tour. That Mm. is also a really huge endeavor to undertake. Like, what is the planning leading up to that? Like, how much like when do you think like oh I have enough stuff to go tour I have an idea of like where I want to go like what is that process yeah um thankfully we have a booking agent where they Mm -hmm. kind of route the whole thing um the tour was kind of planned while the production of the EP was rolling and so Mm -hmm. there was this deadline of like okay we leave this date Mm -hmm. which means that everything has to be done before then um, all the songs has to be learned, you know, me, Matt and Dylan, who play with me live, you know, we have we're like in my studio and we're trying to workshop the songs and we're trying to figure out how to play it with only six hands, you know, or mm-hmm. everything like that. It is definitely, yeah, another part of the process. This was our first, I would say, legitimate like headline tour where mm-hmm. it was our shows. We've been in the opening slot for yeah. like four years, you know, now. And so it was a lot of pressure. It was a lot of nerves. It was a lot of stress trying to figure out like, are people going to show up? Are people going to know what's going on? And to my surprise, like people were singing the songs and yeah. like people were like, you know, just really into it. And we were selling out places we've never played before. And, you know, that I have to thank that to the the YouTube algorithm and like the internet in general still. But like it was, it was really cool because I think, you know, I was talking to Matt and Dylan about this because as an opener, you're kind of you know, it's a great opportunity. I think everyone mm-hmm. should do it. That's, you know, coming through the ranks. But like, there's a point in time where it's really taxing. Like you're there to play a show that no one wants to really hear you like, cause they're <laughs> just here for the next act. Yeah. Uh, you have to pretend kind of like you're not there. You have to clean up. You have to make sure that, you know, you're not stepping on anyone's toes and it's a great opportunity. And we definitely kind of went through the ranks and learned how to tour efficiently as a band mm-hmm. and personally, like friendship wise, how what space everyone needs, you know, when they need or whatever. Mm-hmm. And for the first time when we played like the first couple shows, like 
that's when I realized like touring, I think for me is maybe one of the most fun parts of doing music, playing live music, seeing that immediate reaction from someone like a real person in front of you, whether they like your music, whether you did something, you made a mistake, whether you, you know, whatever, and they're smiling or whatever, they're hanging out with their friends, they're filming it on their phones or whatever. Like it was such an experience that I forgot about because of the pandemic one yeah and two i've never experienced it at that level because people are like yeah we're here to see you and we still can't believe it like we end the show we're like okay the next band's gonna come up you know or whatever it's <laughs> it's really weird but i think like all this is to say like the stress of the tour and figuring that out i think totally does not come close to like the positives that come from playing these songs that you know i've worked so hard on for the past you know whatever getting to hear them in a in a venue and getting to share them with the people who are there uh, I think is maybe the most special part of this whole thing. Yeah, um but it's also a pretty intense experience as well I imagine. Like is there any kind of fear of burning out while you're on the road and I guess on the other side of that question like what do you do when you encounter it when you're not on the road? Like how do you overcome that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Burnout for me definitely is really scary because I I experienced that with film. You know, when I was in film school, uh, it just it ruined film for me because I was doing it every day and stuff. And so um, granted, I'm still implementing it with Ginger. But um, (laughs) but yeah, I think like touring is a whole other topic that I could do like a whole seminar about after (laughs) doing it in different ways. But I think what's really important is to like take care of yourself and Mm -hmm. like it's physically draining, it's mentally draining. I think a lot of people, a lot of other bands will definitely relate to this, but I think people who go to shows maybe don't quite see it because they like they come to the venue and like the band plays or whatever. But yeah, it's like we're in one city, we show up, we're there at the venue for like 6 hours, we mm-hmm. sound check, we play the show, we got to throw all that back in the van and then the next day we do it all again in a city that's like 400 miles away, you yeah. know, or something like that. And we do that for 3 weeks straight. And some bands are like road dogs, they do that for like 4 months mm-hmm. straight like no breaks and I'm like I more power to you. I don't know how you yeah. do that. Um but yeah, I mean like in terms of like you know, experiencing burnout, I think there's this weird thing of like being on the road and wanting to be in the moment and be present and soak in like these experiences you're having and meeting the listeners and everything. But it's like you kind of we call it like low battery mode, like you're mm-hmm. just on autopilot, like you're just trying to get through the shows. And I feel really bad because like I want to enjoy every moment of it. But there's this certain like rut and monotony that happens like in the middle of the tour that I think there's no way to like get out of it. Um, because it's like the same thing over and over again in the sense of like driving, setting up, playing, yeah. tearing down, driving, you know, whatever. And so I think for me, I'm still learning how to maybe cope with that type of burnout or that type of rut on the road. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that's going to be different for everyone. I think yeah. like taking walks by yourself or calling your friends and family back home, I think is important. I think like it's okay to like go to McDonald's instead of like the the famous, <laughs> like like something yeah. that you're just like, I know this is real and I know it's like the same every time, you know, or whatever, I think is a good thing. Um, yeah, definitely like mental health is really important to keep in track to, to hopefully not make yourself get to the state of like burnout and, and fatigue. So, yeah. 
And I have a final sort of dangler question, and it doesn't really relate to any of the other questions that I've asked so far, <laughs> which is, um, you've covered songs like, I'm obsessed with your cover of Cruel Angel's Thesis, and then you also have this cover of Linus and Lucy that's really, really wonderful. How do you choose what songs you want to cover? Yeah, um, I think it's a combination of like stuff I grew up listening to and Mm -hmm. also what's like stuck in my head at that moment, you know? So I think for like Linus and Lucy, there's actually, each of those has their own like reason. Linus and Lucy is because I cannot play it on piano because of the whole like, (laughs) you got the hand separation thing. So I was like, oh, let me just do it where I'm playing the bass part on bass and then I'll just Mm -hmm. dub the synth part. Since I was in middle school, I had this friend who could play it and I was always jealous. And I still to this day cannot play with Linus (laughs) and Lucy. So I was like, let me make it like a totally different cover with bass instead of keyboard and stuff. So that's that reason. And then for Cruel Angel's thesis, uh, yeah, I just finished end of evangelion and my mind was so blown. good it's so, so good. good it's so good um <laughs> and so yeah I, I could only think about that show for like an entire <laughs> two months so i was like i gotta cover it <laughs> I mean, your cover is really, really good. And any uh, Evangelion fans, it is on Spotify and on YouTube. You should check it out. (laughs) Thank you. Cameron, thank you so, so much for coming onto the show. This is such a delight. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun chatting. Karen, I just thought that conversation was delightful. And I thought there was a lot of great advice uh, yeah. uh, in that interview and a lot of great kind of perspective on creativity that I just want to make sure we we talk about before we leave today. And, and one of them had to do with creative flow. Mm-hmm. For Cameron, it's not really controllable. It's more that you have to capitalize on it when it happens. You know, you have to create the space, clear the decks. I, I got to stay in this state for as long as possible and not go do my taxes or eat some ice cream or, you know, play some video games or whatever. (laughs) You know, it's weird though. I personally, I mean, I remember being able to do that when I was like temping because I just was sitting at a phone all day with nothing to do. But now that I have like 17 jobs and a child and things like that, I find that for myself, my process is much more akin to the one that he was saying he doesn't do, you know, like I try to prime the pump as much Mm -hmm. as possible so that in the exact scheduled time that I'm sitting down to work, stuff starts firing, whether that works or not. I don't know. doesn't always, but like, does that make (laughs) any sense? Like, like what is it like for you? Are you, you know, sitting around waiting for the flow to happen or, or what? I want to say that ultimately, I don't think the things that you're talking about are necessarily all that different because it is sort of the same principle, right? Like, even if you set aside the time, you don't know that it's going to work. Yeah, but totally. we all, I think, do that. Like, we don't bank it all on thinking like, ooh, I'm sure at one point this week I will get into the flow and be in this creative zone. Like, we are still setting aside time every day because that's kind of what you have to do. Like, if it is something that you have to keep working on. Like, I don't want to say like, if it's a job, but that is ultimately what it is. If it's a job, you kind of have to keep doing some part of it, even if you are hoping that you'll get hit by inspiration at some point. And ultimately, like all of us also have to deal with 
timing. Like we all have other things to do in our lives besides this creative work, whether it's dealing with family stuff or even stuff as simple as just eating food and sleeping. Like that's time that's being taken up that you can't work. Um, you just hope that you have a good day when you sit down and do work. Uh, and obviously on the show, we've talked a lot about how to get try to get into a creative headspace or otherwise, again, as you say, like try to sort of try to prime the pump. But ultimately, it's just figuring out how much you can do to push the scale in one direction or the other. Yeah, totally, totally. And another thing that's important, which he talks about, and I, I just have to highlight this because of how often it comes up on this show, <laughs> you got to take some goddamn breaks. You got to yeah. create space for your subconscious to do its thing and to knit together the ideas and kind of, you know, it, it, just hitting your head against a problem is not actually how you solve it. You have to do some of that, but you also have to create space for your mind to do work that you're not mm-hmm. 100% aware of. And so since we talk about it so often on here, I guess I just want to say... It was nice to hear a guest say it. Yeah, again, it's something we all know, but could definitely benefit from hearing more often. Um, I think the impulse to take breaks is one we generally try to shy away from because time is so precious. And I think a lot of us often make ourselves feel guilty about taking it easy or taking a rest in some way. I get that way. Protestant work ethic, even though I'm not a Protestant. I also loved how honest he was about his expectations of success and maybe sometimes when he had fallen short of it and how that was difficult for him, you know, Mm -hmm. that there's two ways you can define success. And and to a certain extent, you have to define it in both ways. One is the creativity way Mm -hmm. and one is the business way. And it sounds a bit like he, because he had gotten so creatively invested in his album, Ricky, he had sort of higher expectations of commercial success for it than Mm -hmm, how it panned mm -hmm. out, but was also happy about now looking back about sort of where he is. You're about to come out with a book. You know, I came out with one earlier this year. I'm Mm -hmm. just wondering, like, how are you managing setting those expectations of success creatively or commercially for yourself? I mean, you don't have to share what those are. Like, I want to sell (laughs) a million copies or whatever, but I'm just wondering, like, what's it been like for you? It's kind of weird. Like, I think I'll just be happy if people I like, like the book. Like, I think like it's just like answer. the quote unquote film Twitter sphere. Like if people are like, oh, yeah, it's pretty good. Then I will be totally happy with that as like the end of the road. You'll um, be happy with I'm, pretty good. You'll be happy with people being like, yeah, this book's pretty good. I just don't want anyone to say anything mean to me. Like, that's oh, yeah. really like what will destroy my life. If I see someone to be like, this book like kicks rocks. I'll be like, this is the worst day ever. Um, I'm not really thinking about it financially right now, um, though. Maybe I will like when it comes out or maybe it's closer to the published date. Again, my book is coming out November 22nd. Please buy it. Um, November 22nd. <laughs> I have no idea like how much my publishers will share numbers with me or what numbers they think of as being successful for a book like mine. Although I do know that there are certain numbers that I have to hit if I want to get paid a little more because I, I don't get paid per book sold. But yeah, ultimately, it's just like I just hope that the reviews or reception are, is pretty good. Yeah. And I, I think that's really all like what were what kind of benchmarks were you setting for yourself when, for instance, like when the method came out? Yeah, I didn't want to know sales numbers. I actually yeah. uh, I, I eventually learned what they were like a few weeks ago. I was like, all right, now I'm psychically mm-hmm. healthy enough that I could just learn what the numbers are. <laughs> and I, all I wanted to know, I checked in a few weeks after it came out and I was just like, I don't want to know the numbers. Please don't tell me. I just want to know are you and the publisher happy? I just sent that email to my editor. Are you happy Mm -hmm. with how sales are going? And he said, yes. And so that was of great comfort to me. But the, uh, the main thing about success, these were the two things I I set these very consciously because when I used to do like low budget theater and basements and stuff, 
you would just go crazy if you didn't decide in advance what success looked like because mm. you just be like why don't i have an agent and a review in the times it's like well you didn't <laughs> send a press release to the times that's why you don't know you know whatever whatever it is so um I wanted, I mean, obviously I wanted it to have good reviews. I wanted it to be like in the national conversation about acting, Mm. you know, because the Oscars were coming up and stuff like that. Like I wanted to intervene in the national conversation around that stuff. And I wanted it to sell well enough that the publisher was maybe interested in another book for me, you know, Mm -hmm. like that, that was what I set as the goals. And, And that happened actually fairly fast which is great because Mm -hmm. then it meant that i could just enjoy everything else yeah and it's been wonderful since then because i'm like oh i did like it did what it needed to do and everything else is just really delicious gravy and now i get to point you know then then of course you get addicted to it though and you're like can i have a gravy hose (laughs) <laughs> that it's just, you know, it's just gravy, gravy, gravy. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's what the gravy train is all about, actually. That's what the gravy train's all about. But, you know, there are other expectations I could have had that I didn't like. It's going to be a bestseller. It was not a, it did not make a bestseller list. Uh, I'm fine with that because it did the other things that I wanted it to do. Yeah. I was going to say you could have fooled me because, like, the reception and, like, critical response around it was so, so good and popular response when it was so good that, like, yeah. I genuinely thought that it was not a bestseller list. Well, at least it didn't make the times list. I don't know about, sure. about others list, but you know, like you actually have to, if you look at the bestsellers for nonfiction for the New York times, it's like, you know, Hillary Clinton's book or, you mm-hmm. know I mean? Like it's, it's, it, because it's sort of all nonfiction, right, you know, right. you're, you're competing with all sorts of crazy stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, I will tell you, there was a very funny thing that happened where, uh, speaking of, you know, having sane measures of success where, uh, pretty soon after the book came out, I was a guest on fresh air, which was incredible. I mean, that was like a life changing experience. And someone happened to send me that the book right after fresh air came out, the book Mm -hmm. was in the top 500 of all books sold on Amazon, which is crazy. Right. Yeah. And then of course a day later it was much lower than that or whatever. And so I was talking, I was talking about that with my editor and he was like, do not follow (laughs) your Amazon sales ranking. I've seen it happen. You will go insane. That's hilarious. (laughs) uh, I never checked it again on his advice. Fair. So anyway, hopefully that will happen to you. And then it will also be a bestseller. Which part? Uh, all of that. All of that. <laughs> okay, uh, thank you. Uh, now, here's a question, though, because this was something that that was really hard for me when The World Only Spins Forward came out. Uh-huh. Um, how wrapped up are you in what like Bong Joon-ho and his team think of the book? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I don't know. I actually have to talk to my publishers about that because we should definitely try to send them a copy because we talked to his longtime, like, producer about it i don't know i think generally i don't know if he would read it like because uh my impression of hearing stuff through the grapevine about him helping like talk to people to get them to talk to us about the book was he was like oh i don't want to do it like why would they talk about me like oh no please don't (laughs) i think i think he's very shy (laughs) and very self-effacing um so i don't know how much he would actually want to look into it um but the producer Duho Choi who was so 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 helpful to us um he will 
I will. I hope he likes it. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was lucky with my book that most of the people that I was writing about were are dead. But with the world only spins forward, it was like 250 people we had interviewed who were alive who could oh, possibly yeah. feel aggrieved by how their I don't interviews think, came out. I don't think book. anyone would be aggrieved. Hopefully, because no. um, it's not like I'm writing anything mean about him. <laughs> right. And also, all of the interviews are with people who want to say nice things about him. So totally, totally. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. If you like what we do here on Working, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you know what? It's time for one last Slate Plus pitch. When you join Slate Plus, you get all sorts of goodies, bonus segments on shows like this one, access behind the paywall, a charming weekly newsletter that gives you the inside scoop on Slate written by a different Slate staffer every week. It's great. You support what we do here on Working, you'll feel like a virtuous person. Go to slate.com slash working plus today to sign up. Thank you so much to Cameron Liu, a.k.a. Ginger Root, for being our guest this week. And an extra special thank you to another Cameron, our producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Isaac's conversation with poet Jay Hopestein. Until then, get back to work. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.